Good evening, everybody. Um, for those of you who were here, those of you who were here last week will remember that we um, investigated the question last week of what it means, or the variety of things it has meant in the history of Judaism, to love one's neighbor as oneself. Now, to say this in an incredibly simplistic way, everyone agrees that there is a mitzvah in Judaism to love one's neighbor, what almost nobody agrees upon is what that actually entails, right? Hence the discussion last week. What I want to try to do tonight is to explore a much less obvious question, but I think in some ways at least as interesting a question, which is given that I have an obligation to love my neighbor, do I also have an obligation to love my enemy? Now, it is certainly the case that we could spend a lot of time trying to sort of explore and unpack what we mean when we say enemy. And I think we're going to try to come at that from an angle. Um, and hopefully during the Q&A later, we can maybe talk about it some more. But what is the relationship between having an obligation to love my neighbor, which is not just my friend, right? And having an obligation to love someone who either hates me or whom I hate. What is the philosophical status, the Jewish legal status um, of such an obligation. You can also, I think, frame that question, at least in a sort of Western civilization context, by, by suggesting the following. When Jesus famously says that his disciples are obligated to love their enemies, he couches that, as we'll see later, by saying, you have heard it said, right, love X, and hate, why? One of the interesting questions that that has raised, and the history of scholarship on the Gospel of Matthew never ends exploring this question, who is he talking about when he says that you have heard it said that you should hate your enemies? Because as a variety of New Testament scholars say, well, nowhere in the Hebrew Bible, there's nowhere in the Hebrew Bible that he's obviously referring to there. So is Jesus, in fact, critiquing something about the Hebrew Bible or critiquing what he thinks of as a misreading perpetrated by someone of the Hebrew Bible and his goal, rather than to critique it, is to save it from its misreaders. Is that distinction clear? Right? That's just another way. You know, in yeshivas, I'm fairly likely, I'm fairly confident that if you explore this question, you don't couch it the way I just couched it in the second formulation. Right? But I think it's actually a useful way of thinking about it for those of us who live in, in, in a kind of um, Western society. What I want to try to do, um, somewhat in contrast to last week, is to hew really close here um, to the texts in front of us and to see one of the ways in which I think, you know, this discussion to me in a way is a classically Jewish conversation because what is in fact, or what is arguably in fact, um, a pretty kind of fundamental discussion about what my relationship should be to those who I don't like or who don't like me masquerades as a history of trying to understand a very specific law in a very specific verse in the Torah, right? As often, Jewish philosophy masquerades as textual exe exegesis. Or if you prefer, right, that is the site where Jewish philosophy is often done in exegeting psukim verses, okay? So if you would, for a minute, look at source number one, okay? 
In the interest of time, having been chastened by last week, I'm going to read this in English for now. Okay? When you encounter, we're in Exodus 23. When you encounter your enemy's ox or donkey wandering, you must take it back to him. When you see the donkey of your enemy lying under its burden and would refrain from raising it, you must nevertheless raise it with him. Now, I'm just going to observe, for those of you who have kind of biblical Hebrew, and we're not going to get lost in this, that there are two textual problems here that are extremely difficult to resolve. One is what the root, ayin, zayin, bet, actually means in this verse, and whether it means the same thing each time it's used. You are, if you speak modern Hebrew, familiar with that, with that root meaning to leave, la'azov, but what it means here is not entirely clear. And furthermore, um, it is not totally clear how to punctuate this verse. Um, is it, ki chamor son acha rovet tachat masao, kama, azovlo, azov tazovimo, or is it, ki chamor son acha rovet tachat masao, azovlo? Is it conceivable that you would do that? Right? Now, this will yield precisely nothing crucial for our discussion, which is why I'm going to try to leave it behind. I just want to mention it to you. You can look, those of you who are interested in this, in Sa'adya Gaon versus Rashi's understanding of how to read this verse. Um, the great Jewish question, where should I place the comma? Um, okay. So, now the real question here is, if I, this is like, I think at the end of the day, the most fundamental question. I see, I'm walking down the street, and I see my enemy's donkey. It is collapsed under its burden. I am obligated, despite whatever feelings I have towards this person, to assist in um, raising up um, the, the, the donkey. What is being described here? I mentioned to you three possibilities, all of which, if you read this verse, would be plausible readings. Number one. Don't let your personal feelings get in the way of doing what is decent and right. Right? Plausible reading of the verse. I don't really care what you feel about him. You still have to behave the way you're supposed to behave. Number two, closely related to number one, you know, there's a kind of social contract. There's a sort of social fabric that will easily become unraveled if people can't expect basic assistance, even from people they don't particularly have warm personal relationships with. The difference between one and two is, number one is making a claim on my moral life, and number two is focused more on the social consequences of people not doing this. Number three, which fascinatingly will elicit an incredibly rich exegetical interpretive history of this verse, you know, the fact that you are seeing something that belongs to someone with whom you are on bad terms presents you with an incredible opportunity to heal what is broken between you. Now, I think it's important to say, it is not obvious in reading this verse that, oh yes, it's clear the only possible reading of this verse is, this is an opportunity for human healing. I mean, you could read it that way, but it's not the only plausible reading. Some of you might even want to argue later, it's not even the best shot reading, the best plain sense reading of the text. But it is a possible one. And what I'm interested in, in kind of spending some time on tonight is really thinking about um, 
the history of how that third interpretation develops and what it might teach us about our relationship to those with whom our, our relationships are broken. I'm trying to find other ways of not using the word hate for now. Um, and I'm not succeeding, as you're all seeing. Okay, so look for a moment at the Mechilta. Now, I have three versions of this packet in front of me. Um, this is source four, which is in Hebrew on the bottom of the first page, in English on the second page. Okay? I'm going to read this in Hebrew and translate, and you'll see that we're going to, for a moment, dip into some kind of technical halachic waters, technical Jewish legal waters, but what will emerge here is actually, I think, quite significant. Okay? Oivcha. Rabbi Eliezer, Omer, Rabbi Eliezer says, Beger shechazar lesuro hakatuv medaber. What is the case here? Now this is not, I'm confident, what you would have said had you just read this verse. We are talking here about someone who converted to Judaism and then went back to practicing Islam. That is the person being, uh, Islam is an example here. Um, that is what we're talking about when we talk about an enemy. Now, just out of curiosity, already now, can anyone tell me what might lead a sage, certainly no dumber than any of us, to posit this rather obscure case as what's being talked about here? Anybody have any thoughts about that? David? Assuming that the person you're seeing is a member of your religion, what in God's name would give you the reason not to help them? And so they have to find a reason or a situation where maybe you have a good reason to help oh, them. Okay, yeah, I mean, great, thank you. I've got one more, yeah? Good. Good. So that, that's two. What'd you say? Yeah, yeah, I'm going to. So two dimensions here that I think are actually quite interesting. First of all, I'm going to just sharpen David's point if I could. Last week, we read that the Torah explicitly prohibits me and others, but me, from hating another Jew even in my heart. Surely you are not going to posit a case, the premise of which is that I am living in violation of a biblical law. Now, some of you might say, why not? Right? We're going to get there, right? But premise number one is, what do you mean? The case is when someone is profoundly in violation of basic biblical teaching about interpersonal relationships, this is what happens. It's not usually the way you would construct a case like this. And second of all, you're obviously obligated to return a lost item. This leads to a discussion that I am confident will make some people in this room uncomfortable and that I hope we will have time to get to later. There are people who, according to traditional halakha, although as often in the history of halakha, the category eventually gets softened and in certain cases wiped away altogether, there are certain, cate certain categories of people in halakha whom I am not only permitted to hate, but I am obligated to hate. If I am not mistaken about rabbinic ethics, there are two categories of people in the Jewish people. There are people I am forbidden to hate and people I am obligated to hate. There are no cases where I am permitted to hate someone in Jewish law. That's worth thinking about, okay? Um, now, if, if the obligation to hate someone troubles you, you're in good company and we'll get there. But that is what I imagine, in part, leads Rabbi Eliezer to posit this rather strange case, okay? Rabbi Yitzchak Omer, 
Bi-Israel Mishumada Katuv Medaber. No, it's not someone who converted from Islam and then went back to it. It's rather a Jew who converted to Islam. You're obligated, apparently, to hate them too. Okay? We're going to deal with this. This is what I would call non-Upper West Side Halakha. So you've got to bear with me. Okay? Rabbi Natan Omer, and here I would describe this as fellas. Would you get a grip, right? Rabbi Natan Omer, Bi-Israel Atzmo Medaber. We're talking about other Jews. Like, read the verse, right? Stop coming up with totally tortured cases. What are we talking about here? Elamat Talmud Lomar Oivcha. What is the Torah talking about when it says someone who is your enemy? Ela im hikayat bincha o she'asa imcha meriva na'asa oyev Right. Rather, if someone hit your kid, this has always struck me as a strange example because I can think of few things that would incur many people's wrath more than that and more enduringly than that. But someone hit your kid or picked a fight with you, they become your enemy for that moment. Now, the point is, I think here is crucial. The first two sages make this a case where enemy is some kind of objective category, right? It is a kind of a status of what a Jew in question is. The third case, which seems like the obvious reading of the verse, describes hatred here as very much a subjective category. It's not that Torah doesn't like you because you committed violation X, Y, or Z. It's that I don't like you. More fundamentally, you could say that the argument is in part about what kind of cases does the Torah deal with? Does the Torah only deal with angels who are never in violation of the law? Or does the Torah posit certain ideals and then recognize regularly that we fall short of them all the time? It is forbidden to hate people. How many people in this room, no one's going to raise their hand because you all want to come off as totally righteous, but how many people in this room have ever had more than six minutes where they felt, I hate that guy? <laughs> all right, so thank you for those of you who were honest. Um, right, no, so, so okay, so there's a way in which what, one of the things that's going on here is a sort of debate about what does biblical law deal with? Does it deal always on the plane of the ab initio ideal? Or does it deal also with the reality of, yes, it's forbidden to hate people, but you know what? I'm a person. And so it might be someone who just in infuriated me, and in this moment at least, when I'm walking down the street, I am filled with all kinds of feelings towards her. Okay? Now... Just to sort of push this one step further, Rashbam, the kind of, um, probably you could say, the, the most consistent, plain sense interpreter of the Torah, comments on this verse, Chamor sona'acha, diber bahoveh. Scripture speaks literally in the present tense, but of reality. I think you can read this based on rabbinic sources in one of two ways, and probably both. Number one, it's only giving you the example of a donkey, but if you pass your, your enemy's cow, the same law would apply. Do not be the kind of person who reads cases that are meant to be illustrative as exhaustive. The example of this I always give is the mandate to walk in God's ways in Jewish law. The classic four cases in rabbinic literature right, are um, clothing the naked, visiting the sick, um, comforting the mourners and burying the dead, right? 
Here's how not to read Jewish law. Someone calls you and says, you know, my husband just left after 23 years. I'm totally shocked. I'm left with four kids. I don't have anything left. And you say, you know, I'm looking at the Gemara. You're not really A, B, C, or D. Sorry. There's no chiyuv here, right? I'm not obligated, right? That's how not to read a Jewish text. Seems to me that one of the things that Rashbam might want to say here is, yes, I'm giving you an example of a donkey, but... I'm not I, God is giving you an example of a donkey, but it applies to other things as well. And, or, in light of the text we just read, even though it's forbidden to hate people, there are situations when in fact people do. Okay? So now all we've seen so far is that if you hate someone, either because you think objectively Jewish law requires it, or because subjectively something has transpired between you, right? You must nevertheless help that, and I want to slur my sentence here, person animal, right? Because you could argue that it's one or the other. I'm not trying to call that person an animal. You understand the distinction? In other words, you could argue that in the second case, it's the animal that I'm helping. Most people do not read it that way, right? Or you could argue that it's the person that I'm helping or that it's both, okay? Now, but here's what's going to happen. As I said, there are these three possible readings, and the third reading will now emerge in force. Going back all the way to the Targum Onkelos, the kind of first um, commentative translation into Aramaic. Abigail, how's that for a description of a Targum? Commentative translation, I just made that up. Is that good? Okay, thank you. Um, um, so here's what he says. When you see your enemy's, your enemy's donkey fallen beneath its load and would withhold from taking it up, it's probably how you should read this. If you're following in the Aramaic, I am now six words from the end, or seven words. Mishpak tishpok madibilibech alohi. You must put down what is in your heart against him and help him. Here you have, I think, the first step right, where this verse, there's going to be a choice to read this verse as about healing bad feelings, right? Here is an opportunity that presents itself to put down hate. Now, you could say, wait, he's only talking about putting down hate as long as it takes to lift up that animal. But I suspect that that's a tone-deaf reading of what he's trying to do here, right? In other words, what I, what I mean by that is you could find a way to force that into categories one or two. Put down hate long enough so that you do what the social contract requires of us. Uh, that seems unlikely to me to be what's going on here. I think he's trying to open some kind of door. And then you can see also um, Targum Yonatan. And here I just want to mention to you another example of um, finding an objective category of hatred. Targum Yonatan, Targum Yonatan says, Targum Pseudo-Jonathan, if you, we have, as I said last week, we have no idea when this is actually written. Um, if you see the donkey of your enemy, whom you hate for a sin that you alone know about. What is that? That's a very technical halachic thing that he does. That is, if I want to make someone culpable in a court of law, there have to be two witnesses. That's basically kind of basic Jewish law. Once I've done that and they're held responsible, it is impermissible for me to hold any hard feelings to them, towards them. 
Ah, but what happens in a case when I alone saw someone do something wrong so that I cannot make them culpable? I am obligated to hate them until some kind of resolution is reached. Once again, hold your ambivalence about that whole category, okay? But here you see again, now, now we're gonna have a case where we're clearly talking about an objective um, category of hate. And then in the second line though, Mishbok tishbok beahishata. Put down your hate for that moment or at that moment. Two very different meanings. Follow the distinction? Basha'ahahi, for those of you who speak Hebrew. Put down your hate, basha'ahi. Does that mean put down your hate for that moment as long as it takes to do the right thing? Or put down your hate at that moment because there's an opportunity here? The problem with reading the second way is it seems like there might be an obligation actually traditionally to hate this person. So it's not clear that it's a good thing for me to put down my hate. People following me here or am I like losing you in Talmudic la la land here? <laughs> this is actually like, this is, may feel technical. It's actually gonna be deeply non-technical in a minute because what's at stake here is crucial. Now, if I asked you, the two targumim we just read, is that what the text says? Or are they off to the races in your mind? What's your, what's your kind of instinctive reaction to that? You buy it, you don't buy it. What, what's your reaction? Are you along for this ride of the Targumim? Yeah. I feel like once Michael. they're characterizing this person as Oyevcha, um, that there's no sense of that changing. That, that person is categorized as your enemy, and this is describing what you do with respect to your enemy, but the status between the two of you in the Peshat does not seem to me as something that changes. Did people hear that? No. The argument that's been made here is that in the Peshat, in the plain sense of the text, someone is your enemy, and there's no indication in the text that whatever happens here moves them into some other category. There's no indication here of fluidity, you know, at the end of this encounter, they're no longer my enemy. That's your, your reading. Wait, other people? Yeah? So I think that they're reading when you do something for somebody else or with somebody else, even if it's your enemy, they may not stay your enemy. It's the whole concept of community service. Okay, great. So, so, so what you, I, I, here's what I want to try and do with your comment, if I could. I think we can say at minimum, if we're going to be kind of conservative and careful here, that the Targumim opened the door to that possible reading, but it is not clear that that is what they're doing. Now look, and in some ways, this is like one of the linchpin texts I wanted you to see. Midrash Tanchuma about this is sort of amazing, okay? Atako nanta mesharim, quoting the book of Psalms, you, I don't know how to translate any of those words technically in Psalms, you have established righteous laws, okay? Amar Rabbi Alexandri, Rabbi Alexandri says, Shnei chamarim hayu baderech. Right? There were um, two chamar from the, from the word chamor, two donkey drivers who were um, walking along the way. And they hated one another. The donkey of one of them collapsed. His friend saw it and kept walking. Misha Avar, and then comes the pang of conscience. Once he walked on, 
He stopped. Amar, he said, Ktiv Torah. It says in the Torah, Kitirech Amor Sonacha, Vechule, etc. When you see the donkey of your enemy, right, etc., you must help. Miyad Chazar Vita'animo. He immediately went back and helped him. Hitchil Lasiach Bilibo. The other one began to talk in his heart. Amar, kachaya ploni ohavo, should be ohavi probably, velohayiti yodea. He doesn't hate me at all. I just assumed that he hated me. Nichnesu lahem lepundak v'achlu v'shatu. They walked into a local bar and they drank and they ate and drank together. By the way, this is actually... Violating the laws of not editorializing, this is like gorgeous and profound. So beyond the funny part of it, it's actually really interesting. Okay? Migaram lahem shasu shalom. Who caused them to make peace? Al yedei beat zeba Torah. The fact that this person looked carefully at the Torah. Atakonanta mesharim. This is what it means in the book of Psalms when we say to God, you establish righteous laws. Ezezeh zemishpat. Okay? Now, now, this is like totally fascinating. Here, you have this argument that biblical law has the capacity not just to ensure that I do the right thing, but to fundamentally heal and transform relationships. Because in an act, this is Adrian's point, in an act of, and here you can fill in probably different words, kindness, concern, if you want to be a slightly more conservative, responsibility towards the other, want to be slightly more expansive, camaraderie, right? It is possible that the walls between us come down. By the way, this is also, for those of you who like this kind of, kind of thing, a quiet polemic against like, sort of overly formalistic interpretations of law. Oh, what is this talking about? This is talking about what I must do in the case when there's a donkey on the ground, I must pick it up. Rather, there's a donkey on the ground, there is an opportunity here for relationships to be healed and biblical laws to no longer be breached. That is, the law of it being forbidden to hate people. Right? Because that's what the case being described here is. Two chamarim that hated each other, two donkey drivers that hated each other, is clearly not a case where each one of them saw the other do something and they were the only witness. Right? It's personal. Right? One, they feel they're competitors with each other and they don't like each other. So the law here is taken to mean, and this now opens a door wide open to the claim that what the Torah is interested in here is healing. Um, okay, now, just to give you one more example of this, Ben Yaakov, conservative rabbi, Bible scholar, one of the several people who, German Bible scholar, one of the several people who sort of did literary criticism of the Bible before there was such a thing as literary criticism of the Bible. Um, he says the following. You have that in front of you, right? In the, in the packet you have? Yeah. At the beginning, such a venture would be done in silence, but then some exchange will be necessary for the effort to succeed. That will break the ice, and finally the enemy would have to express thanks, which may very well build a bridge of friendship, so that they could leave not as enemies, but as brothers. Not common need brought them together, but danger to one, which led the other to be helpful. This provides instruction in the practical aspects of love your neighbor. If I can conflate sources, for those who were here last week, if you remember the Ktava Kabbalah, that the, 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 
positive obligation of loving your neighbor is doing the things that I would be hurt if the other person did not do for me, this is probably a good example of that. I don't expect you to give me all, all, all your money, but I do expect you, if my donkey is lying on the ground, that you help me pick it up. Therefore, I am obligated to do that too. Okay? Now, would you describe this as love your enemy? No. Okay, let me have one, let's start with one vociferous no. Give me a strong no. Mine is a vociferous no, because so far you really haven't spoken about love. So far you've spoken about some form of gentility. Yeah, except for the Tanchuma, which says, oh, it turns out he loves me. But, but, but yeah, I, I, your point is still well taken. In other, words, you, in other words, what you may be arguing, tell me if I'm putting words in your mouth, in which case I'll think about withdrawing it, um, <laughs> is, <laughs> just kidding, um, is um, this is primarily focused on behavior so far. With the exception of the Tanchuma and the Beno Yaakov, right? But I, I would say the Tanchuma as not commanding you to love him, but just saying, look how wise these laws are. If you follow the laws, the law is one thing, it'll have this positive outcome. But the positive outcome is relational, not just merely getting something done. Right. But that's okay. Not so let me, let me take my point in a different way for a second. It's not just, oh, oh no, let's say it differently. It's not that I have to act out of love, but the odds are somewhat good that if I act in this way, perhaps feelings of love might emerge. This is, I can't remember if I said this last week, but you know, one of the, yeah, I think I did, um, Raveliao Dester's famous argument, right, in 20th century Musar, people say to me, right, I don't understand how I'm supposed to give this person. I don't love them. And I always say the same thing. How do you expect to love them if you've never tried giving to them? Everyone has the logic backwards, right? Sometimes behaving in a certain way elicits certain feelings rather than waiting for those feelings to elicit the action, okay? That's, we could play with that. That's kind of how I would maybe bring your two comments together. Um, now, can I have a vociferous yes? Litvox, yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> No, I'm not interested. No. <laughs> you and I will have to fix some donkeys together. Yeah, go ahead, please. I, I don't know if it's vociferous, but you can argue that it's, that based on the biblical verse, it's intrinsically linked to emotion because it says one that you hate, not someone that you feel ambivalent about, right? Like, Good. if someone drops something on Good. the street, I'll pick it up. I don't know. It's a stranger. But, like, it's someone I do not like, right? Therefore, emotion is... Okay, so on interpretation one, I could push back and say, look, you feel what you feel. I don't care about that. I'm asking you to do the right thing. I actually share your intuition that, and this is what Tanchuma is basing itself on ultimately, I think. If the issue here is hate, I have a feeling that what we're dealing with here is hate. Now, that's not an argument, really. It's kind of an intuition about how to read a verse. Right? Given how problematic it is, at the apex of Leviticus, we learn you are forbidden to hate your brother in your heart. You would not be crazy to conclude that biblical laws between people who hate each other might be intended to close the gap between them in some way so as to eliminate the hate, which is a threat to Leviticus's whole system of holiness. Right? Leviticus 19, the core laws about how one becomes holy, the center of that chapter, don't hate but love. Lotisna ve'ahavta, ve meaning but. Don't hate but love. Not crazy to read it that way. Okay? Now, I'm going to show you something for a minute. I, so I, I got, that's how I would call that a semi-vociferous yes. 
Okay? Now, Peter Enns, contemporary evangelical Bible scholar, I just wanted you to see this for a minute, okay? The identity of the enemy is not given. But we should presume that these laws concern members of the Israelite community, not foreigners. If you have my note in there, I apologize. That's my, for my own notes that I forgot to take out of this. These verses are aimed not at the welfare of animals, but of the enemy. Love your enemies is not a sentiment found only in the New Testament. Now here's something interesting in the history of Christian interactions with the Hebrew Bible, right? For hundreds of years, you had people who were deeply invested in showing the manifest inferiority of the Old Testament to the New, so that much of what Jesus said had to be a radical innovation. Now, you have a certain kind of cast of liberal Catholics and liberal evangelicals, not always only liberal evangelicals even, who are deeply invested in what seems like the opposite project, which is to say that much of what you might think of as radically innovative on Jesus' part in terms of social ethics is already part of the Hebrew Bible also. I would only point out, and I'm not here stacking the deck because I myself have mixed thoughts about this, either one of those proclivities can lead you to fail to see the text in front of you properly. Right? Wanting to see discontinuity and wanting to see profound continuity are agendas. We all have them. But, in other words, I'm not sure that Enz's reading is necessarily any better than the one that says, oh yes, as Donald Hagner, who I mentioned in our note, you know, who I would say is a New Testament scholar not in love with the Old Testament, right? We had other words for that in the past. Um, Hagner, you know, will say, like, well, what do you mean? I mean, the implication of love your neighbor is basically hate everybody else. This is called an anti-Judaic reading, right? But both of them have the potential to have you lose shot. Is that clear? People still with me here? Okay. Now, um, I will just mention to you that the next source is, you know, the Gemara, the Talmud learns from these verses also the laws of tsar Balei Chayim, the obligation to um, be um, merciful towards the potential suffering of animals. But I think it is very hard to think that it is only about that. Because um, the moment where you explicitly bring up and emphasize that this is a person you hate, suggests, I think, something else in addition. Because otherwise you would say, if you see any donkey anywhere lying under its load, right? So there's, it may be two, and you could see Nachum Sarna, you know, nicely says in one sentence, yeah, it's about both. Now, what I want to show you, if I could, um, is the way this gets played out in the book of Mishle, in the book of Proverbs, um, and then see if this can lead us somewhere interesting in thinking about um, what the Jewish approach, whatever that might mean exactly, the Jewish approach to hating or loving enemies might be. Okay? So the book of Proverbs says, If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. And then comes the problem. The explanation given is extremely hard to understand. I forget about to like, just to simply understand what it's driving at. Because you will be heaping live coals on his head. And God will reward you. 
What does it mean to heap live coals on someone's head? The, the range of interpretations here in the history of Judaism, in the history of modern biblical scholarship, is all over the map. Jonathan, you look like you had a clear explanation. It seems to me like it's sort of cynical win-win. Like your enemy feels really bad because you've done this nice thing and now he has to deal with these mixed feelings. But you get points from God anyway for the good deeds. So, you know, you make it worse for your enemy and better for you. Yes, so this is what I would call the, um, well, the instrumentalist interpretation, right? Let me tell you how to kill two birds with one stone. You'll humiliate him and get credit for yourself, right? Now, so you can look, for example, I, brought, I, I left you here, I think, two modern biblical scholars who want to argue, if you want to read this in a positive but limited way, Vengeance is best left in God's hands. The book of Deuteronomy. It is, I do vengeance, but you, lotikom velotitor, we're back into the same verses in Leviticus. Do not bear a grudge. I'm not here reading the rabbinic reading of that, of, of that but simply write, do not take vengeance, that is action, or bear a grudge, that is emotion. Okay? Um, you can look at the, the, the passage from Michael Fox, who agrees with, um, Rabbi Malami here, the bottom, the sentiment here is not devoid of vindictiveness, for it motivates the humane treatment by promising shame to one's opponent and reward to oneself. Now, just because I want you to sort of see how um, this can go on and be read in a very different way, skip to where it says Midrash Mishlei. This is a source that some of you will raise your hand and tell me this is not a Jewish source. Okay? This is wild, okay? Um, and I'm skipping some of the nuances here just so we can cover some ground. That's the verse. If your neighbor is um, hungry, feed him bread, and if thirsty, give him water. Even though he came with the intention of killing you, but he arrived at your home hungry. He arrived at your home hungry or thirsty. You must feed him and give him drink. Why? Because you are pouring heaping coals on his head. That is to say, God will take care of whatever punishment, um, but not you. By the way, I don't think that the thrust here is, leave it to God, because God will punish him better than you could. It's, leave punishment in the hands of God, and don't you be the one to do it. Now, this case is quite shocking, because the illusion that you most likely will hear, if you are a student of rabbinic texts, is someone who is attempting to kill you Hashkem lehargo. You are obligated to kill them first. Only this midrash says, someone who arrived to kill you but says, I could really use a sandwich. You are obligated, you are obligated, I repeat obligated, to feed them. Now, many people will no doubt say in encountering this text, wait, what's the case here? Right, in good like rabbinic idiom, hey dummy, like what is actually the case here? You know, like, so David Duke knocks on my door, right? He has a pistol in his hand, and he says, I'm famished. 
No, I'm, I'm actually, I know, if you think I'm, I'm not doing stand-up here, I'm really being serious. It's a very hard case to, to parse, right? And you say, here, let me get you a bottle of water. Now, many Jews, rightly or wrongly, have been raised to think, punch him, knock him out. Or since this is 2008, write an op-ed. <laughs> right? But, but the case here is really shocking. Now, obviously, David Duke is a bad example because I assume the case actually talked about here is two Jews. And one of the things one might think about here is the boundaries of what's an enemy. Because so far, the case that we saw in Tanhuma was someone who had some kind of altercation with my kid, or what was the other case? Um, oh, we had some kind of disagreement. We had, an, we had an argument about something. What, if anything, are the implications of this for thinking about being accosted by a violent anti-Semite? Well, don't rush and say that's different because it's violent, because this case is talking about someone who came with the intention of killing you. Right? It is very hard to know. This case is a little bit like a stick of dynamite, this midrash, on this whole discussion. Because just when you think this conversation can be domesticated and made safe, okay, fine, like, so if I don't like you, like we had some issues, we, had, like, we exchanged some snarky comments on Facebook, or whatever it might be, okay, so I'll give you some of your drinks. Says, no, the person came intending to kill you. Would you like a glass of orange juice? No, I, I'm not trying to be flip. I'm trying to show how, how, how sort of like suggestive this case is, right? And surprising it might be for sort of stereotypical notions of Jewish ethics. This is why I was sort of being a little playful when I said before, what is the Jewish view? That is by definition a somewhat dumb question, right? Because there are lots of Jewish views about most things like this. But what I struggle with with this text is figuring out what the case is and what its parameters are. And what are its implications for a different kind of enemy, right? Does this apply to someone who doesn't like us as a category as opposed to someone who doesn't like me? What's the halachic difference between someone who came to kill Shai Held because Shai Held, I don't know, is opposed to Donald Trump or the case of someone who came to kill Shai Held because he's a member of the Jewish people? Is there a difference? Is the difference only technical, that the person who's in the second case is not a Jew, presumably? These are all open questions that this text brings. Is this about love, by the way? Well, Nachum could say it's not about love at all. This is just about being civilized to the person who's trying to kill you. No, I'm not saying you're wrong. You might be right about that. It's very, this is a very hard case, okay? I, yeah, I'll take two comments about this, and then... I'll expect some emails, like timestamped, like 2.40 in the morning. When people, that's usually what happens if we have a text like this. Yeah, please. So I just want to get a little bit more precise about the orange juice. Um, because wow, good stuff, yeah. Because I don't think the question is, would you like some orange juice? Because that's not the case described. It's rather, if they ask for orange juice, then you give it. And the reason that I want to get more precise about it is you're not actually trying to... Wait, how do you know that? It's not, there's no orange juice in the text. <laughs> <laughs> wow. By the way, that's a mic drop right there. <laughs> no, yes, but there's no... When you said earlier, when you said earlier, um, they come to the door with the pistol and you say, would you like a glass of orange juice? And I'm saying, no, 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 that's not actually the case. 
They come to the door with the pistol and say, I'd like it. How do you know that, though? Oh. Um, they arrived hungry. Not that they arrived and said they were hungry. No, meaning you might be right, but you might be wrong. I don't think we have enough, we have enough information to conclude that. That's why I wasn't picking on your orange juice example. I'm saying, I don't think we have enough data for that. <laughs> and how would you know that they're thirsty if they haven't said I have seen people today on several occasions <laughs> about whom I felt confident saying, you look thirsty. Okay? <laughs> okay? These are most people I passed today. Okay? You look a shtickle thirsty. <laughs> would you like maybe a glessel wasser, right? So, okay, whatever. So... Right. I just want to get to the actual point I was trying to make on, with that. Oh, you want me to let you make a real point? I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. If, if, I hope it will turn out to be one. Um, that all of this has led me to wonder what hatred actually is. And Good. Okay. When I think about the common denominators between the, the fury and the righteous indignation and the mixture of feelings, it's basically... Um, masking your perception of reality in such a way that it gives you an agenda. So maybe hatred is just having an agenda um, in, in a negative direction. So it's possible, you know, I... So... Well, I, I want to, without getting kind of, I, I want if I could just sort of reframe what you just said in a way that will be totally unhelpful, but nevertheless it might be able to me at least, you know, um, which is... I often find myself wondering in cases like this whether the content of the emotion is left vague intentionally. Because a case like this is meant to be a conversation opener, not a way of poskining law, of determining law in a particular situation. What do you mean by hate? Yeah, that's a discussion we should have right now. And the questions that I was raising about the Midrash Mishlei are exactly the kind of discussions we should be having. The first time I ever taught this text, okay, um, I think it's okay for me to say it. The first time I taught this text, I, I had just, just like found it a couple days before, and I taught it to a group of rabbis, and one of them immediately responded by saying, I, I cannot. Like, I have been stalked by white supremacists relentlessly. I, no, right? I am never opening my door to someone who came to kill me no matter how hungry. And that occasioned like an extraordinarily painful and important conversation about, you know, when is one obligated to be a humanitarian towards people who hate you? That has implications for lots of issues. That opens up all kinds of conversations that we in the American Jewish community are deeply invested in never having. No, I'm, I, 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 you can reach right, you can talk about whatever, by the way, that's not, I, I don't regard what I just said as a political statement in any way. It's, it's the obvious ethical question. Like, what about a genuine dilemma? That is to say, someone who is actively hostile towards you has violent intent. Is it obvious in Jewish ethics that you at that point have no obligation but obligation to yourself to dispense with them? Not according to Midrash Mishlei. According to other sources, you could argue yes, right? But that's, those are the issues that are raised, right? Um, and they are, you know, they are hard issues. Now, some people might find this very frustrating, but I, this is an opportunity for me to say something that I never tire of saying, which I know is like incredibly frustrating to some people, and I understand that, which is that I often think that texts in Jewish ethics are more often intended to give us better language for the questions than they are to provide us with answers. And that part of what it means to speak Torah is to be able to be articulate in its language about what the dilemma we face is. And part of what it means, if you'll forgive me for one minute, to take seriously, as Rambam did, um, the reality of moral particularism, 
Moral particular is a meaning that every situation has unique details attached to it, such that it is extremely hard to come up with principles that will apply in every instance. This is why, one of the reasons why the Rambam was so obsessed with virtue. Because he thought, you're not going to have a halakha that's going to be able to answer the question of, okay, so halakhically, I can fulfill my obligation to visit the sick with you by calling you on the phone. But you would be really annoyed by that phone call. So is it mutter to use the phone to fulfill the obligation of Bikr Cholim? The Rambam's answer to that is often, well, it depends on who you are and who they are and what the nature of their relationship is. That's why you need virtuous people, because law can't solve all those cases. Right? And so there's a way in which, now by the way, some people will say, well, that's deeply subversive of the whole halachic project. Right? To which I think the Rambam would have said, well, maybe, but I'm actually just trying to realize it fully, which is to understand what law can and can't do. Law is a set of instances of instantiating virtue and setting me on a path towards virtue, but it can't answer all the questions. So, you know, in a similar way here, so what do I have to do when someone knocks on my door with the intention of killing me? Well, who are they? And what's the situation? And who's more powerful? And is there a risk? I mean, would this Midrash say that if there's some chance that if I let them in my house, they're going to actually shoot me in the head? I mean, I'll tell you that the first person I taught this to said, oh, you feed them so then you can have a fair fight. Once they're fed, then you can kill them. <laughs> I suspect that's not shot in Midrash Mishle, <laughs> although it's a novel reading. Um, but, but in other words, so that's what, I, I, that's what I'm suggesting, at least some of these issues are intended to raise. Okay, now, I, I want to just point out to you, since we're going to run out of time, but I want to take some time for more back and forth. Um, Ralbag, Gersonides, does something in reading these verses that I think is like really beautiful. Ralbag, at least as much as Rambam, was obsessed with virtue. Um, that's the topic of the Omiyun on July 18th. So, if you want to join us, we'll be thinking about virtue and character um, from a Jewish perspective. Ralbag essentially says, I mean, I'm kind of maybe too freely kind of translating here. Wait a minute. Forget about what your obligations are to that person. What kind of person are you going to, be, are you going to become as the kind of person who says, oh, you're hungry? Hmm. Most unfortunate for you. I'm going to just enjoy watching. Right? Ralbag says, what kind of person is cruel in that way? Right? The real issue is, and then he says something that is like, and, 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 and curious, Jonathan, if you would still say this about this, you know what your best revenge is? You use this opportunity to become a better person yourself. That's a total subversion of what revenge is, right? It's a total subversion of what revenge is. You know what my best revenge on you is? I became kinder through this encounter. That is why the heaping coal I pour on your head. Now this will lead Right? Once you open that door, then you have kind of created the possibility of essentially asking over and over again, and we'll, I want to get to this um, after I take a round of kind of general questions. I want to talk about this briefly at the end. You've opened the possibility of saying, virtue, I'm going to say this in annoying philosophies and then in English, virtue becomes the hermeneutic by which I then interpret law. That is to say, when I'm trying to interpret what the law is, one of the central questions I will ask myself is, what kind of human being will be formed by poskening the law in this way? If I say, 
oh, it is not only permissible, it is required to hate, I don't know, half of the Jewish people and everyone who's not. One of the core halachic considerations will be what kind of human being will result from that. Right? That the consequences for character are themselves determinative in the decisions about Jewish law. This is a position, by the way, this is not some argument from some kind of like out there liberal position. You find this among Muslim writers in the 20th century on a not so infrequent basis. If it's going to make for horrible people, it can't be the law. So people can write essays about the purported virtue of hate, right? But they're not only wrong at that point, they're dangerous because they're reading law as a way that will essentially create bad people, to put it in a not so subtle way. That's what Rabag opens the door to, and that will be picked up in the 20th century. Let me stop for a minute and take three questions. At this point, it's questions. These are not speeches. Questions. Okay? And then if, see if I can be helpful in, in, in handling them. And then I'm going to say a couple more things. Yeah, please. Itana. Why don't you both go? Although with all three of you started talking at the same time. Itana, you go first. We're talking about the kind of human, though, that comes out of a situation. And we're talking about this like pouring coal in his head being the result of you proving yourself to be a bigger person. Doesn't that just completely counteract it? No, I don't think it's proving yourself to be a bigger person. I think it's actually making yourself a better person. Those are very different things, right? I can, I, we all know the kind of sort of like semi-violence that comes from proving that I'm better than you are. By the way, that is what lotitor actually means halachically, right? I am going to loan you the thing that you wouldn't loan me because, unlike you, I'm not a horrible human being, right? That is, that is, that is its own form of violence, right? That's not what it's, I don't think that's what Rabak is talking about at all. He's saying, oh, I have like learned to become the kind of person who doesn't act in this way. It's about me, not about what I'm saying to you. But then where does the port, like it being a hit to himself, like the porn pull on him? Well, that's what I'm saying is what I think that Rabag is trying to do is, an, is a subversive reading of pouring the coal on his head, which is the best revenge is you hated me and I used that as an opportunity to become a better person. But the revenge aspect of it, doesn't that take away a little bit from the... Yeah, but the revenge is no longer revenge. That's the point. That's what I think, I think that's what Rabag is after, but I might be wrong. This is the danger of us not doing this carefully inside right now. But in other words, look, there's always, as you know, different ways of reading verses. One of the ways to read verses is to subvert them. As we're going to see at the end, right, the famous case of Bruria educating Hillel about not hating his enemies. What did I just say? Thank you. Bruria... Thank you. Bruria educating Rabbi Meir about um, how um, not to hate enemies by quoting a pasuk to make her case, which she and everyone else knows she's completely misreading. And this is an example of what I always say. There's two kinds of people who ruin Chazal, those who hate them and those who love them too much. Meaning, because you think, oh, that's obviously what the verse means. No, the whole point is she knows she's misreading a verse. She's not dumb. So what, is, what does it mean to read a verse in a subversive way? We'll get there, okay? Take one more. I left you completely unsatisfied and unhappy. But it, will not, it was not the first time, and I'm confident it will not be the last. Go ahead, yeah, please. Could feeding your would-be murderer be a subversive self-defense technique? Yes. I think that is one possible reading is one of the things you accomplish by an act of radical kind. In other words, you can read it as continuous with picking up the donkey. 
only it can work in a much more radical case, arguably, right? People familiar with cases of people who invite white supremacists over for Shabbos Kiddush, and lo and behold, they become Jews, right? This is, you know, the two cases that we all like to talk about, right? But no, I, but you know what I mean, right? There's a way in which, sure, one of the ways to sort of like neutralize someone is to overcome them with kindness. That's a very dangerous tactic, right? Because it is not guaranteed to work, to say the least, right? But he's hungry, then he's not hungry, and maybe once he's not hungry, have a yeah, except that you could argue that the best thing you can do to disempower someone is keep them hungry, where they don't feel the physical capacity to fight you, right? You're taking a risk. That's why I'm sort of trying to couch it as complicated, right? In other words, you, you, what, you, what you may be trying to do is morally, emotionally neutralize them, even though you're physically strengthening them. That's a complex move. That's why, again, I'm not certain what the case here is. Right? We are not going to decide the halakha based on a uncharacteristic comment in Midrash Mishlei. We're merely going to open this discussion, right? Because it's, it's a very hard instance. Um, yeah, please. The uh, philosophical uh, aspects of this obviously all predate psychology and modern science and modern medicine. Is there room to read physiology into this? That the chemical imbalance that comes with hunger, that comes with thirst, that comes with exhaustion and other uh, aspects of the human condition, right? are stressed in a way that creates emotional responses like the desire uh, of anger to such an extent that one would want to kill, that would be satisfied and subdued by satiating that hunger. So I'm not close to readings like that, except that the words of this text seem to me on the surface at least to suggest that the person intended to kill you but arrived hungry, not the person intended to kill you because hunger overcame them. Meaning, you, you, I think you can certainly read that. I mean, and I don't think that that's necessarily so modern. I mean, you, if you think about why it is that we do Yom Kippur hungry and what the psychological implications of that might be. Right? I mean, let me give you a, just a very crude example of this that I think about every year. Um, maybe I'm davening in the wrong places. That's totally plausible. But like, here it is. I've just, one of the many things I've been working on is being less selfish understanding the needs of other people, and then the fast is over, and I literally have mastered the art of the hip check getting to the table, <laughs> right? So the whole point was, in, when I'm reduced to these animalistic urges, what kind of person am I? And then lo and behold, well, that was an amazing Shmoneser, would you get out of my way, right? There's something really off there. So I don't think that that's a, I don't think that there's anything problematic about reading in that way. I'm just not sure that's the case being evoked here. Um, because you might have, I think the case might have been formulated somewhat differently if that's what we were talking about, which you would have said, you know, someone who was hungry and out of control. That's not what we have a description of here. I think we have a case here of someone who came with malicious intent and somehow ended up vulnerable. Okay, now, if I could, I want to take one, st one step further um, and, and mention, you know what, I, I want to ask you to skip all the way to the end of your packet um, to source um, source 37, okay? You don't have 37? Oh, the last page missing? All right, people, people, don't get me worked up here, okay? 
David HaMelech is, a, it, what it, it is attributed to David HaMelech, the following statement, Halo misanecha Hashem esna. Those who hate you, God, I will hate. Okay? And then, Mishlei Chet, chapter 8 of Proverbs, Yirat Hashem sinat ra. Now, the fear of God is hating evil. You could argue that these two verses are talking about different things. David is saying, I will hate the wicked. Proverbs is saying, I will hate wickedness. Those are two different things, okay? It is not rare in Jewish sources to read them as both saying the same thing. That mandate that I mentioned earlier on a few times that I no doubt has troubled some of you, right? Which is, one must hate the wicked. Now, some of you might say, by the way, this is a discussion for another day, I don't have a problem with hating the wicked. I just want to imagine what the wicked is totally differently than traditional halachic categories, right? I want people who are brutal to the poor and weak, but I don't want people who violate Shabbat in public. The classical halachic category. Okay, I'm not right. Mechalel Shabbat b'farhesia. Right? I'm not sure very often when I think about these categories that most Jews' problem with this is that anyone is being hated. It's they don't like who's being hated because the category of wickedness they don't believe applies to ritual law. That's a discussion we could have sometime. Okay? Um, now, the Gemara, the Talmud in Source 40, will mention one position. It is not the only position, but at the very end of this passage, we have Rav Nachman bar Yitzchak Amar mitzvah lisanoto. It is a mitzvah to hate him. The other positions were, you are permitted to hate a sinner. This position is, you are obligated to hate the sinner because, and then a quote from the verse from Mishlei, which I suggested we could read in a different way. Now, these are, the, the verse from Psalms, the verse from Mishlei, and this passage in the Talmud are, you could say, the classic sources that Halakha has to wrestle with in dealing with the question of, wait, really? I'm supposed to hate everyone who's a sinner? And as in many cases in the history of Jewish law, where if you believe, and I'm not assuming here that everyone thinks this, but if you believe, that there is something morally and religiously problematic about the obligation to hate people. <coughs> this problem is only solved practically and not theoretically. That is to say, very rarely, if ever, in the history of halakha, will someone come along and say, this verse is offensive, I want no part of it. That is simply beyond the conceptual universe of how you engage with a sacred text traditionally. Right? But what you will find ways of saying is, well, that's obviously not operative now, right? What do you mean, kill Amalek? I, we haven't known who an Amalekite is for 200, for 200 years, right? Now, some will say, I will call them liberal purists for the moment, will say, I will not be satisfied with tradition until I can stand outside and morally judge each text. I'm not saying this dismissively. I'm just trying to say it emphatically, okay? And there are others who will say, no, the moment I stand outside of the tradition and judge it morally is the moment in which the tradition is no longer making an authoritative claim over me. And so I'm not prepared to pay that price. You could understand empathically both of those views, right? First of all, let me just say, are they clear? Right? One view says, no, I want to call it what it is. It's morally troubling. Talmud comes close to that in certain instances. Are you really saying that 
parents would submit their child to the law of ben sorero more, of the recalcitrant child. Really? What kind of parent would do that? But as a rule, you solve that problem practically. So this is an interesting case of that, right? Where, especially in modern times, well, actually, let me say, even already in Midrash Halakha, in the very earliest Midrashim, in Midrash Sifra, we have the following discussion. It is only permissible to hate a rasha, to hate a wicked person, when they have received tochacha, when they have received halachic rebuke and have rejected it. Oy, God help us. Nobody knows how to give rebuke correctly. So nobody falls into this category. This is the first century, okay? This is not the CCAR convention 1956 in the Catskills, right? This is, sounds kind of fun. This is, this is um, early rabbinic leaders saying, no, the, the case doesn't apply. Now, you could say, well, that's just a technical case. I wish that we did know how to give tochacha so that we could hate enemy, we could hate Rishayim. You could read it that way, or you could say, well, practically, I'm solving what could be seen as a the theoretical problem, but I'm solving it in a practical way, which is I don't want to end up in a situation where hate is legitimated, let alone mandated. Now, there are other cases, too, and I want to just mention one, and then I want to sort of end by talking about one 20th century case of this, um, which I think is kind of magnificent and fascinating. Um, the case that you see all over Haredi literature, ultra-Orthodox literature in the 20th century, is that the great figure of Haredi theology in the 20th century, um, the Chazon Ish, Rabbi Isaiah Karolitz, famously says in a throwaway comment on Hilchot Shechita, the laws of Shechita, you know, the laws of being a heretic applied in a world in which they were manifest miracles, and it was obvious that people who didn't believe in God and rejected God were doing so willfully could you go outside and look around? This is, this is 20th century Haredi Psak. Obviously, the category of heretic doesn't apply in a world in which there are no Nisim Gluim. There are no manifest miracles. Someone might not believe in God because they just don't see a good reason to. You think it's halachically obligated, obligatory to hate them? On the contrary, it's halachically obligatory to love them. You have to pull them You have to pull them with cords of love. Now, you could argue, the Chazonish is thinking, I can't wait for there to be manifest miracles again so we can go back to hating all the Reformed Jews. You could argue that. I think that's probably a bad reading of what he's doing. Even though if you said to him, are you solving a theoretical problem? He would have said, what do you mean a theoretical problem? There are no theoretical problems of that kind. Nevertheless, you would not be crazy thinking that might be what's happening, right? He is neutralizing a category that is explosive. And when you're, when, when you're the Chazon Ish, when you are this person, that means that anyone after you who wants to say there's no obligation to hate has a tree to hang their position on. Um, by the way, I'll also just mention, and then I want to talk about the case that I want to end with, the Tanya is most famously quoted in this way, the first Lubavitcher Rebbe, chapter 32 of the Tanya, where he says, fascinating psychologically to think about what he means by this, you may be obligated to hate sinners, but you also have to love them because they're part of your community. So you have to cultivate the art of loving and hating at the same time, which I would suggest severely weakens the hate. I tried this, you know, with Nachum for a while, 
Like I tried, I said, you know, I'm going to hate Nachum. But I love Nachum. It didn't work because like it, the, the love weakens the hate. You should see his look at me right now. <laughs> it's amazing, right? I'm going to pay for this for years. Um, no, but so now, but I want to give you an example here. Developing what I said about the Rabag earlier. And with this, I want to end and then take one more round of questions. Rabbi Yecheska Levenstein, 1895 to 1974. Mashgiach at the Mir Yeshiva in Europe, in Shanghai, in Israel. Not a member of the rabbinical assembly. Not a member of the Central Conference of American Rabbis. Not a reconstructing Jew. None of the above. Right? The Mashgiach in the Mir. And here's what he says. There, you don't have this text. I'm happy to mail it to you if you want to see it. If you hate all the time, how will you fulfill the mandate of Ahavat Habriot, of loving human beings, which is fundamental to what it means to be a Jew who takes Torah seriously? And then comes the most amazingly subversive thing ever. Listen to the logic of this. This is what I mean kind of by a subversive text. In our time, there are so many Rishaim that if it was required to hate Rishaim, you would become a horrible person because your whole life would be filled with hate. So obviously it's Asur to hate at a time like this when everyone's wicked because the implications for your character would be devastating. It's Dafka forbidden to hate when there's so many people you'd be obligated to hate. That is an interesting argument, right? Now, how can you know, by the way, even in the old days, this is amazing, if you hate someone such that you think, I really hope bad things happen to them, that's obviously forbidden. If you hate someone traditionally in the sense of, and I hope they will become a better person, that's the kind of hate that might have been permissible then but it's obviously not permissible now because then you would violate the fundamental obligation to cultivate a life based on love. Um, Why is that a violation? I'm not getting that. Because the fact is when you allow yourself to hate someone, something happens to your character, right? And then he says this totally gorgeous thing. He says, what is the real meaning of when God says to the angels, you may not sing praises while the Egyptians are drowning. The meaning of that is God says, I don't hate the Egyptians. I just hate what they did. I am sonei resha, but not sonei reshaim. I hate wickedness. I don't hate the, did you think that you're supposed to hate the Egyptians? You don't hate human beings. I made them. Liberal Jews and their stereotypes of Haredim, by the way, put them all down right now, right? This is an argument that is more creative and visionary than a lot of other things that come out of liberal contexts, right? One of the reasons is you're not self-conscious about making it. Right? So God says, I, you can't hate, it's Asura to hate the Egyptians, they're my creations, what's wrong with you? And then he says this amazing thing that sounds like it was published by Elliot Dorf in A History of Conservative Judaism, right? He says, he says, anytime there's a mitzvah and your reading of the verse would end up making you a worse person, you don't have the shot of what the mitzvah is. You're wrong. 
You're wrong. I understand you're going to show me rabbinic texts that say you have to hate the wicked. That is not what it means. Hating the wicked means hating wickedness. Because if I hate the wicked, I will become a person whose life is dominated by hate, and that is forbidden. Because after all, virtue is everything. The whole point of living a life of Torah is to develop character. What kind of character are you developing? Soon you're going to be publishing articles and first things saying, it's a mitzvah to hate people. No, it's not. No, it's not. Mayor Salvejic is a friend of mine. He's just wrong about this, okay? <laughs> now, um, now, um, believe me, there are many things he thinks I'm wrong about, too. Um, in fact, there are a few things he doesn't think I'm wrong about. Now, um, and then he says this, you know, this beautiful essay, right? In the end of, you know, a tshuva that could have been passed before the law committee of the conservative movement, right? One must hate the deeds of the wicked, but one is forbidden to hate the wicked themselves. Why? After all, Rabbi Akiva taught us a human being is beloved because he or she was created in the image of God. And surely it is a sort to add to the sum total of hatred in the world. And then he says, there is no relationship at all between hating evil and hating the evildoers. One is required by valuing goodness in the world, and the other is the path to perdition. That, by the way, is, although he doesn't really put much stock in it, the famous story which, with which I ended the packet of Hilla, uh, why do I keep doing that, of Rabbi Meir and Bruria, um, is about that, where Bruria says, do not pray that the wicked die. That's hating them. Pray that the wicked repent. Because that's hating wickedness. And then, as I mentioned before, in this amazing misreading, she says, Itamu chata'im min ha'aretz. Chata'im in that verse unequivocally means evildoers. Chata'im is a synonym for chot'im. Urishaim odenam, that is called biblical parallelism. May there be no more wicked in the world. And may the evil disappear. She says, does it say chot'im? It says chata'im. You have to pray for sins to disappear, not for sinners. And what does it mean when it says urishaim odenam? Yeah, because they won't be rishaim anymore when they stop sinning. The way that you wipe evildoers away is by turning them righteous, not by praying for their death. What's wrong with you? One of the things that is actually very powerful about that, by the way, and here um, I'm confident there are many people who will say that I'm overreading, is she trusts her moral intuitions enough to deliberately misread a verse. That is a religiously courageous move. I know it says that, but it can't say that. By the way, that's also what Yechezkel Levenstein said. I know it says that. I understand that it's a position that Chayav Lisanoto is obligated to, it's obligatory to hate them, except that can't be. Why? God will make you a worse person. Torah is not in the world to make bad people. What, you want to embrace Nasetlo Sam Mavet? You want to create a universe in which Torah will actually make for death and brutality and hatred? That's obviously not shot. It can't be what the Torah means. Okay. Questions? Yeah, please. I don't know if these sources are really relevant for like the white supremacist case that we constructed. And I'm thinking especially about the, the Midrash Mishle, right? It's not addressing any 
abstract sense of like justice. It's saying even though you have a personal feeling of revenge, right? That's all it's dealing with. You have a personal feeling of revenge that you want revenge. Don't pursue it. God will take care of it. But the reason why we don't let the white supremacists in isn't because we're person. We personally want him to suffer. It's we feel that it's morally wrong to service him. And I think the midrash isn't touching on. Well, I would just be. I would be careful just <clears throat> about we. <clears throat> I think, you know, when you get to cases like this, people have all kinds of different motivations and all kinds of different circumstances. <clears throat> Meaning, I mean, we know people who Dafka do want to be in conversations with white supremacists because they think they can convert them. So we have to be careful about we, right? Maybe you want to say, I'm not, I'm not, maybe you want to say, I. Yeah, but forget about servicing. I mean, take a directly parallel case. I mean, are you saying the reason you wouldn't want to give a white supremacist a glass of water is because you don't want to service them? Yeah, like as a meaning, not as a as a personal meaning. Midrash is saying, even though you personally want revenge, let God take it. But if you have some moral reason, you know, I think it's wrong to throw a party and invite the white supremacists, unless you have some you know justification, like I want to convert them. That's kind of a totally different topic. But it's not, because I think the whole point of these cases might be the moral transformation that, and emotional transformation that can take place through personal encounters. Meaning, I'm just trying to make what you're saying a little less obvious. Meaning, I think, I, I hear you, and yet these cases seem to be about somewhat unlikely scenarios where transformation is possible. Now, to be clear, I, I agree with you that it is not obvious, and it may be that you can't make a leap from... You know, Mike and I have had some issues in the past and like I decide to help him versus David Duke and I have some issues and I decide to help him. To the best of my knowledge, there is no parallel between Mike and David Duke. Right? Now, you could say, no, but there's a lesson that I'm supposed to learn about my interaction with anybody. Or you could say, well, no, that's a preposterous reading. And yet, the reason I'm not convinced that it's totally preposterous is the case describes a situation where Mike and I have had issues and Mike comes to kill me. Now, admittedly, that's one source. I, in other words, I just want to make this case a little harder for you. That, that's all I'm invested in doing. Because um, it isn't as clear to me as we don't want to do that. Um, okay. Yeah, please. Uh, I'm wondering what's... Like how this plays in with the themes of Tisha B'Av and Sinat Finam, the story of Kamsa and Bar Kamsa. Like, is there something going on there that can be played into the story? I mean, look, there's a lot of things that can be played into it about um, Sinat Finam in the sense that, you know, I think you can, we can find other sources that I think are more directly connected to that, which are, uh, he, he, let me sort of take that at an angle. The Ramban, on um, which we only kind of mentioned briefly last week, Nachmanides, unlove your neighbor as yourself, which we take to mean, which, sorry, which Nachmanides, Ramban takes to mean, love your neighbor as yourself, love for your neighbor, want for your neighbor all the things you have. And then, you know, really pushing the envelope, he says, you know, you can't wish, I, I wish you lots of wealth as long as I'm wealthier. You have to wish for other people to have what you have, right? Um, one of the implications of that position in Ramban is that jealousy is a vice that stands directly in the way of fulfilling the obligation to love your neighbor as yourself. Jealousy becomes then the, the kind of the meta-vice, right? Um, 
the inability or refusal to judge people favorably, or to use a term that is extremely important in Pirkei Avot and then in the world of Musar, to fail to have an ayin tova, a generous eye. When I see someone have something, I don't immediately think, oh God, you don't deserve any of that. Right? All, the lack of all of those things, the manifestation of jealousy, the refusal of kafschut, of judging people favorably, and the ayin ra'ah, and the kind of ungenerous eye, are all door openings to hatred and arguably sinat chinam. Because many of the people who you find yourself jealous of in life are people who have done precisely nothing to you. Right? It's one thing to be jealous of the person that you have had interactions with and like really don't like. That's its own set of issues. But you know, sometimes you're jealous of people who you literally have done nothing but see on the subway and didn't like the way they looked at you. None of you have any idea what I'm talking about. You're looking at me like I'm crazy. Uh, please. Right? So, in other words, I, in other words these, are, these are all doors that open onto Sinat Chinam. They, let's say this. They all open onto Sinat. They all open onto hatred. And once you open onto... I think this is also part of what, what, what Rav Levenstein is saying. Once you open the door onto hatred, the door to baseless hatred is wide open. Very few people can say, I'm filled with hate, but I'm selective about it. Just don't think that's how hate works most of the time. I think that's very, very rare. Right? That's what it means to begin to become vicious in the philosophical sense. That is to say, governed by vice. So I don't know if that's enough of an answer, but it, and all these things directly feed into those discussions. What happens in a community where no one has a generous eye for anyone else? To use you know, Israeli slang based on Yiddish, if I'm not mistaken, right? Ve'haftalarecha kamocha in Ramban is all about the ability to lefargain for other people, right? That's what it is. That's what he means. It's fine for you to have things. I, I'm not, I think that's actually exactly what he's saying. You, you know what? You can be successful. That's great. The, the danger of not striving for that is that. Is, is essentially the Sinat Chinam piece. Okay, let's take two more questions and then we're gonna call it a night. Um, I'm gonna call on someone who hasn't said anything after this, okay? Oh yeah, you know, I already called on you, sorry, please. Then. Okay, uh, I'd like to just focus on the concept of transformation that you raised earlier. Um, so it's clear that, uh, that the imperative for us, for us to transform ourselves for the better that, that, that goes without saying, in a sense. That, that is the primary uh, motivation. But to what extent do we also bear a responsibility for the transformation of this other person who, who we may not like or we may hate? And so That's what the Tanhuma is about. And, okay. And, and is, there, is there a limit to that? In other words, do we become better and better people beyond the point where we may be at too much risk? Or at, you know. Okay, well wait, so, so let's take your first point first. I mean, what's so interesting about the case in the Tanhuma is it's actually interested in how my actions lead another person to put down his hate. Now, I don't do it by giving him a sermon. I do it by being kind 
and he is the one who is transformed in that situation. Now, the question that I think you ended with, if I understood it correctly, is the question that we raised along the way, which is, you know, at what risk and under what circumstances? And that's why that Midrash Mishlei text is so confusing, because there seems to be a case where I am risking my life to mitigate hatred. Is that really required? Is that desired? I don't know, right? Now, here's what I think many Jewish thinkers would say that will not solve the problem, but is worth saying. Most of us don't have the problem that we are taking risks that are too big in overcoming hatred. Most of us have run the more common danger of too easily settling into our hatred and thinking that we are objectively right and nothing can move us. And by the way, God shares all of our prejudices, right? As I've often said, right? I think that, in other words, and they would say, like, look, I hear your question, they, and, and it's legitimate and right, and we have to take this on a case-by-case -case basis, but would that most of us were up at night with this problem. I really want to open my house to a white supremacist, but what's going to happen, right? That's not where most people live. Maybe white supremacist is actually a bad example here, because I think it's probably good re But, you know, I, I want to have nothing to do ever with that neighbor who wouldn't lend me her lawnmower. I hope she, you know... The only things I can think of saying now are in Yiddish, right? I, 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 you know, I hope all these horrific things happen to her. Right, I mean, so most of, my, most of the time my problem is not, right, oh my God, I'm going to be too generous and risk my life. It's going to be, it's the opposite, the opposite. That's not a way of answering your question, but it's a way of saying where I think they would want to shift the point of emphasis because often fixating on the extreme cases is a way of getting us away from the obligations of non-extreme cases. I think a lot of us do that all the time. This is why in cases of moral philosophy, people often invoke the Hitler example, right? Which is a way of just ending a conversation. Oh yeah, right? Okay, please. No, behind you. Sorry, Adrian, I apologize. Go ahead. I was going to invoke the Hitler example. Oh, go, of course, go ahead, bring it on. I just wanted to know how it, how it applies. I mean, are, are we saying that God, God wanted, uh, you know, Hitler, to, the, the, us to cry for Hitler the way we're supposed to cry for Pharaoh and his, his uh, chariot? Okay, so um, you have, many of you have heard me say before that this was Leo Strauss's great joke, right? Whenever you're losing a philosophical argument, you invoke what he called the argumentum ad Hitlerum. Um, <laughs> The argumentum ad Hitlerum consists of, oh yeah, and what about Hitler? And no matter what you're talking about, you've won the argument. Now, but taking, it, taking that case, you know, seriously, the way you raise it, look. So, what I meant by raising the question before of, the Midrash Mishlej seems to be talking about, I, I think, right, a case where there's a personal grudge, right? Elisheva and I have not gotten along for years, and she shows up in my house wielding a machete, <laughs> right? And I, arguably, according to Midrash Mishlei, am obligated to say, I just bought some Tropicana, would you like some? <laughs> right? And see what happens, right? Maybe, maybe something can be transformed. I ask the question, rather than making a statement, right? Does that logic apply to someone who is a habitually violent anti-Semite? Now, you could arguably say, well, I understand you want to have a discussion about your own virtues and vice, but meanwhile, this person is dangerous and you have an opportunity to kill them. 
That's what I was, right. That, but, but I think the Midrash Mishlei case is specifically playing with that. Hence the language of hashkem, which is supposed to ring a bell in your ear. I'm playing with that Gemara. I don't know what I'm trying to do exactly, but I'm playing with that Gemara. Not I. The Midrash is playing with that. So, look, you know, I, I think that one could argue, should argue, and this is going to be the last thing I say, oh, this is a terrible way to end, but, um, you know, that one would have to be, at very least, extremely cautious about making a leap from a personal grudge that has the potential to spill over into violence and a genocidal maniac. Right? Like, there are people in the world in my lifetime, and by the way, maybe you could argue this is not the most moral position. There are people in, in the world in my lifetime who had they shown up at my door, I would like to think I would have tried to kill them. And that could make you such a list. It's not that long, but like, right? Many of them have been tried for war crimes, right? I would not give Tropicana to Slobodan Milosevic. I would not give Tropicana to Saddam Hussein. I would give him Minute Maid. No, I mean, the, 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 no, the, the, it's a little joke. It's a little joke, sorry. The point is, so, so, so yes. So, but then, but see, but, but here's the thing. The interesting case, I think, is Okay, fine. So at one poll, we have Elisheva, who doesn't like me, and has come, for some reason, wielding a machete. And at the other poll, we have, you know, a genocidal maniac. Okay, that's great, but what about everything in between, which is basically almost all human encounters? <laughs> right? And, and, and that's where the... By the way, that's why the Hitler example is often so problematic. Because it actually... I'm not criticizing you, because I think you asked it in an interesting way. You weren't using it as a, as, a, as a conversation stopper, but as a conversation opener. But, you know, the Hitler example is illustrative of far less than we like to think. Because knowing that the answer in the extreme is no tells me nothing about the less extreme cases. Okay, so I'd kill Saddam Hussein, but what about... I don't know. I'd kill Bashar Assad if I could. Without hesitating. I believe I, yeah, and I would believe I could defend that in all kinds of ways, moral philosophy, Jewish ethics, whatever. But like, what about, I don't know. What about the people that have been perpetrating these mass killings? What? Yeah, I don't know. Look, I, I am totally open to the argument. Look, this case does not apply to any of those kinds of things. I just want us to take a long, hard look before we conclude that. Because it might be that there are certain principles that are evoked here that can be applied more broadly than we might initially think. It is very common for people to say, you know, this is a version of what I said at the beginning of last week, Christian ethics says this, Jewish ethics must say the opposite. I think that's rarely true. I'll leave you, this is maybe a better way of ending, I'll leave you with this, with this example. It is very common for people to say, I've heard this a thousand times from a thousand different Jewish educators and lay people, Christianity believes that you have to forgive people no matter whether they apologize or not. It is an unconditional obligation to forgive. Judaism, in contrast, says, I only have to forgive people once they apologize. So in the last 10 years, a very prominent Christian ethicist wrote, published a book in which he said, that's preposterous. Why would there be an obligation to forgive someone if they've never apologized? That basically is complicity with evil. 
And Dani Statman, professor of philosophy at the University of Haifa, published an essay in Hebrew in which he says, you're all reading Chazal wrong. Of course there is an unconditional obligation to forgive. It has nothing to do with whether you're apologized to. So much for Judaism says this, Christianity says that. Okay, thank you very much. Thanks for listening. To learn more with Hadar, please visit hadar.org slash Torah.